Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. Today, we are bringing you the second episode in our special three-part mini-series on race and racism with Tabitha Moore and Ken Hardy. Over the next few weeks, Tabitha and Ken will explore critical themes in race and racism as they relate to the child welfare workforce, caregivers, and children and youth of color in the child welfare system. Although each episode in this mini-series does have a distinct focus, our hope is that you listen to all three in the order of their release, as some of the concepts that Tabitha and Ken discuss will build on ideas from the previous episode. So if you are starting on today's episode, please go back and listen to last week's episode first. Today, Tabitha and Ken will focus on the experiences, strengths, and needs of children of color in the child welfare system. Here we go. Thanks, Cassie, and hello, everyone. Tabitha Moore here to welcome to another episode of Welcome to the Field. I'll be with you for this next leg of our series as we dive head and heart first into talking about race and racism and child welfare. I'm fortunate to be joined by racial justice legend, expert, and marriage and family therapy icon, Dr. Kenneth Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a clinical and organizational consultant at the Eichenberg Institute for Relationships in New York, New York, where he also serves as director. He provides racially focused, trauma-informed training, executive coaching, and consultation to a diverse network of individuals and organizations throughout the United States and abroad. He's a former professor of family therapy at both Drexel University in Philadelphia and Syracuse University in New York, and has also served as the director of Children, Families, and Trauma at the Ackerman Institute for the Family in New York, New York. Ken will be joining me for three episodes as we explore these themes and these critical issues. This is our second episode. Ken, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. So here in Vermont, we disproportionately remove kids of color from their homes. We don't keep accurate enough statistics to be able to account for other possible trends, but there's been widespread acknowledgement that we need to do better for children of color in our care, both in custody and those whose families interact with the child welfare system in general. On today's episode of Welcome to the Field, we'll speak with Dr. Ken Hardy on how the child welfare system can be more responsive and reflective of the experiences, strengths, and needs of children of color in the child welfare system. We'll also touch on how to talk to white children and families about race and racism, as if we are to undo systemic racism, people of all races must be doing the work. So, Ken, let's dive right in. So, I'd like to begin by helping our listeners get a sense of the meaning of what it means to be a kid of color in the child welfare system. So if you could, please provide us with some information from your decades of experience and what it might be like for kids of color um, in our child welfare system. What's happening for youth who have contact with their systems? Uh, What are some of the things that people need to know? Well, I think first and foremost, um, let me just draw what what I think it means to be a child of color uh, in our society, that it means that you are born into a group that is uh, stigmatized, uh, devalued in the broader society, so that um, through no choice of your own, bombarded with a plethora of negative messages about who you are. That's, that just means that's, that's who it is to be a child of color, no matter who you are. You could be the children of Barack Obama and Barack and Michelle Obama. And you're going to be exposed to those messages uh, where you are defined by society and defined in a particular way. Then to be a child of color and then to be in child welfare system, it means that you are then having to confront and deal with 
double stigmatization. And so that it's no matter how you look at it, no matter what angle you look at it from our society to be in a system like child welfare is, 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 is to be a part of a stigmatized devalue experience. And so I think that, um, that that situation, that dynamic is compounded for children of color. And to the extent that those children of color happen to also, if they happen to be from poor backgrounds, then you're looking at three different layers of stigma that children at very early ages, before they even know what the word stigma is, have to deal with the residuals of, of that. Um, and I think that's a tall order for, I think just being a child of color is a tall order. But then when you factor in these other variables, I think it becomes even that much more daunting. So as I'm listening to you talk, I just keep thinking, wow, that's a lot of trauma. Yeah. And so, you know, if if people who are caring for the children, like child welfare workers or um, even foster parents for that matter, um, are going to be working with these kids, with their kids, what, what do they need to know? I mean, you know, how can they be um, trauma responsive and racially responsive? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that uh, from my experience that it, it seems that that one of the major misnomers of, of those who foster sometimes is to think that that what, and I've, I've actually had families say this in treatment, what this child needs is someone to love them and discipline. They're on some occasion, uh, folk, families have said, and they need the Lord in their lives or need religion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think all of those things are important, but, uh, you know, I, I do workshops on this for the child, where, child welfare system that love is not enough. So that, um, that yes, they do need love and they need structure and discipline, perhaps, uh, and religion, if that's one's belief system. But I also think that they need attention to underlying trauma wounds that they carry with them. And I always say that you see a young child who's in the system that with a backpack and that if we were to unpack that backpack, we'd find books and a pencil case and, you know, very maybe eyeglasses if they wear glasses, all these visible, tangible um, markers about their lives, which you won't find in that backpack are all the invisible wounds of trauma that the child has to deal with, uh, though they're carrying a backpack full of trauma. It's just not readily visible to the naked eye. And so one has to look for it in order to see it. One has to know what they're looking for and even to be able to see it. And oftentimes that's, you know, that's a missing piece of this work. So as I'm listening to you, two questions come to mind. How do people know what to look for? And then how do you recognize specifically racial trauma in children? Well, I think that racial trauma is its own unique form of trauma. And I happen to believe that, it, that it's virtually impossible for children of color to be born and raised in our society without sustaining the wounds of racialized trauma. Because I just think that the negative messages around race are pervasive. They're everywhere. They're part of the media. They're part of the programs that children watch. They're in the schools. It's it's inescapable. 
And so first that um, one has to recognize that race is a real thing and that, that racial oppression paves the way for racial trauma. And when you have racial trauma, that it wounds you. And, and so I think just accepting that as a construct. And then I think there are, there are a set of wounds that I think that are unique to racial trauma that I think are fairly universal for, for young children of color. And so I think enhancing one's knowledge of those wounds. So for example, that it is hard to be, have membership in a group that's devalued in the broader society without internalizing one's devaluation. So if I hear, uh, hear it enough, read it enough, see it said enough that um, I'm not smart or um, I don't talk right or uh, that I'm um, a thug or whatever ways, whatever the messages are that I'm, that I'm threatening, it's hard not to internalize those messages. And once you internalize those messages of devaluation, it really limits what you, it limits how you see your potential and what you can do. It limits your, even your mobility in lots of ways. It it has a very debilitating effect once one internalizes one's um, devaluation. And this then, and then this persists across the life cycle so that see high school kids who won't consider college because they have so deeply internalized the message they're not smart enough that college is for smart people and images of smart people are white people. Uh, And so therefore they don't put forth the effort to do it. They don't see it as a possibility. At the college level, I see, you know, students of color who do remarkably well, like in a master's program, for example, but won't consider a PhD program because that, that haunt about not being good enough is there from early childhood exposure, and it just traverses the life cycle. Mm. I mean, that's just one of one of many. And so as I'm listening to you think, or listening to you talk, I also think, you know, how do we foster greater confidence, self-love in kids of color who are in our system? And how do we repair the harm of racial trauma? Well, see, I just think that uh, I, I have often said this to clinicians that I, that I supervise, that if you work with a, and I believe this is true of all families, but I think it's particularly true of families of color, that if you spend 45 minutes with a family of color, a child of color, and you haven't identified anything, a badge of ability, a redeemable quality in that child or family, that that's a problem with the observer, not the observed. And so I do think that we on the worker side of things have to be intentional about looking for the hero, the shero within the children that we work with. Uh, and then I think we have to exercise the, the TSA rule. If you see something, say something. So I don't think it's enough to see it unless we're actually sharing it with the child. And so my my first interaction with a child that's in the welfare, the child welfare system is I want to make sure that he or she or they leave that first interaction with me with some sense about what at least a redeemable quality is that they have. Because I think that that is restorative. That is how you begin to restore, uh, rebuild and replace that has been devalued. And so I think there has to be a conscious effort to do that kind of restorative work with the soul of children of color. Now, it just so happens 
that when the emphases are on punishment and them having structure, that the exact opposite is usually what happens, that there's a lot of interaction with the child that's shaped around you shoulds, you shouldn't, uh, don't do this, you better do that, uh, without spending the necessary, the requisite level of time pointing out to the child about what their badges, what I refer to as badges of ability, the things that like these invisible badges that they wear around that really carries and, and says, here's some, here's some positive, here's some redeemable qualities that I have that others can't see. And so I think that becomes a foundation for all the other subsequent work that we do with children in the systems. Because if we don't, if we don't convince them that there are parts about them and their experiences that are good and redeemable, then they they allow they just get saturated in this negativity around um, devaluation. Mm. So as, as as workers, particularly white workers, because we have a lot of those here in Vermont, um, are trying to. Um, uh, do this repair work with with children of color and you know children in our child welfare system already you know have a sense of distrust and then you take on top of that kind of the the potential um, racial distrust that kids may not even be aware is happening what should child welfare workers be doing to develop trust across race well I think it requires a to acknowledge race B I think it requires having a willingness to name it and talk about it I don't think there can be, because I don't think there can be an unraveling of mistrust if the worker is mute about issues of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's even true in my own life. I mean, I, you know, that if, if, if the things we, if the things we can't talk about, then it's hard to invest in that relationship. It's hard to feel a sense of trust. And so I think that's important. And then I think that the, particularly the white worker has to get out of the deficit model that they've been trained that they've been trained in to look at a a family a child welfare family and immediately identify what's wrong with the family mm-hmm. what's wrong with the child that's how we're trained we're trained to look for problems and that's what we see and so i think when you're dealing with someone who's been profoundly pervasively uh, and comprehensively devalued that um, if we're starting with what's broken and what's not there then we're not going to build trust. We build trust by authentically pointing out to this child the redeemable parts we see in him or her and building on that and to not move to to critique until we see evidence that that feedback, that restorative work we're doing has had some traction. Mm. But again, as I was saying in a previous session, that if the orientation is on product and moving very rapidly, then it just isn't time to take to do the restorative work because it takes time. So anyway, I was just I just think that to build trust requires the worker uh, to be able to see that which which is redeemable in the child uh, and to do the kind of devote the kind of time and attention to the restorative work because I think if 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 I have a profoundly devalued sense of who I am, that um, that I'm, I'm stuck in that place. And so to be able to sit with someone who actually sees value in me, sees that, who, who doesn't fail to hold me accountable for all the 
you know, the, the problematic behaviors I might be involved in, but in addition to that, is able to see some redeemable aspects to me to see that badge of ability. I think that will help build trust immensely. Mm. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm reminded of uh, your book that you co-authored with Tracy Lasluffy, um, Teens Who Hurt Clinical Interventions to Break the Cycle of Adolescent Violence. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, some of the complex relationships between individual, relational, systemic, and societal factors, um, including the concept of of race. Uh, I'm hearing you start to talk about that, so I'm just wondering if you could expound a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, that's as uh, I'm impressed you remember that. But so, so I just think that when I talk about the wound of, of internalized evaluation, for example, that this happens on multiple levels, and I think that the worker has to be positioned and poised to treat it on multiple levels. So at the individual level, you know, that um, it may well be that I've grown up in in a family where I've been devalued. And it could be that uh, any number of issues that uh, I've been neglected or abused um, uh, or just been told that I'm a a awful person because my, my skin tone is too dark. And, and, and so that has had, that has lacerated my soul, just having that kind of individual exposure. But then there's these, there are these societal forces that also contribute quite massively to devaluation. And so that it's hard as a child, you know, or anybody for that matter, a person of color, to, to be exposed to like the murder of George Floyd, for example, or Breonna Taylor, or Ahmaud Arbery, uh, or Walter Scott, or the countless numbers of other uh, Black people who have been, uh, unarmed Black people who have been murdered. And it's one thing to be exposed to that, and then the other is to see that that no one is held accountable. Mm-hmm. That um, it, it, you know, we know societally that that's given birth to the Black Lives Matter movement, and that Black Lives Matter is basically a movement to counteract devaluation, the very thing we're talking about here. And so this devaluation, so when you take a child who's experienced some of the rawness of that within the context of context of one's family of origin, and, and, and that could be any child, you could have a white child who could be exposed to that. And here's where the, the parting line is, that that white child though, does not go out into a society where the white child is devalued around the core of who they are. The child of color who has that challenging family situation where he or she had been devalued now has to go out and interact in school and other systems in the, uh, outside the family and the broader society and get another heavy bombardment of devaluing messages. And so it compounds the issue. And so that that is why I think in some ways that racial trauma has to be dealt with when working with children of color because it is such a debilitating dynamic on the lives of people of color, broadly speaking, and particularly children of color because because they are in fact children. You know, we're talking a lot, and it's really important that we are, you know, paying attention to the people who are most victimized by racism, um, especially, you know, our kids who are, you know, as you said, double stigmatized or double victimized by it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, here in Vermont, um, we have a lot of white kids. And and what I think we're seeing nationally happening right now with pushback against things like critical race theory and, you know, trying to create national legislation so that we're not even talking about racism in schools I see that we also have an imperative to be talking with white children as well. And so what would your recommendations be for child welfare workers about, A, why and how they 
need to talk about about it? And then it, how do they talk about it? So could you could you go down that avenue a little bit? So yeah, I think it's I think it's an important question. I'm glad you raised it because I, I often say that that in white families and families of color, uh, it is commonplace for children to receive the talk from their families. The difference is that in families of color, the talk is a racial talk. And in most white families, the talk is usually about sex. I think it's absolutely important for white children to be exposed to conversations about race and both in and outside of families. And I think that it's important for white children to know that they're white because it's astonishing to me that if you if you just pick out a randomly picked out a five-year-old little white boy for example or 12-year-old white girl that is interesting to me that they know or believe they know what gender they are they can tell you i'm a boy i'm a girl they can tell you that pretty definitively in most cases and how is it that but neither would necessarily know that they're white. And how is it that they've been white as long as they've been boy or girl, but the whiteness is greeted with some sense of, uh, it's been in a, in an unexplored part of their background. So I think that having conversations with white children about race is absolutely, absolutely 100% imperative. And I think if it's nothing more than just introducing them to the notion that they are white and and how that is received in society. Because then what that would do is lends itself to then also talking about some of the some of the unfairness associated with it. Mm. It would de- it would demystify race. And it would quickly debunk the notion that race is a people of color issue rather than a human issue. It sounds like one of the messages that we want to, you know, um, instill in white children is that race is not just about, uh, it's not just about brown people or people who are not them, because then we're just still reiterating the, the same paradigm. Right. So then, you know, what are some of the, the key issues that workers need to be hitting on when they're talking with children uh, about race and racism? Well, I think what it means, A, what it means to be white. I think the way that whiteness is constructed in our society, mm-hmm. you know, like parents, like Progressive parents have no trouble saying to their daughters, for example, uh, you can be anything you want to be, and yet you may have to work a little bit harder because our society has this mythical notion that men are more better than women. And, and that's deconstructed for cho- for many children around gender. I think the same kind of explanation and deconstruction is needed for white children, that you'll be treated this way in lots of places in our society because you're white, which isn't fair. And you'll have children of color who would deny the same opportunities. And I want you to grow up with this belief and this notion that everybody's equal uh, or that everybody should be treated equally, though, although that's not the case. I, I, I think in age-appropriate ways that it's important for parents and workers to have these conversations with white children in a way that really explains and deconstructs whiteness. And again, like I said, this is it, like that the conversation may appear a little differently with an eight-year-old than it might with an 18-year-old. But I think it's a conversation that needs to be had in both instances. And so, you know, as we're looking at this, I mean, I always am kind of picturing younger kids up to maybe the age of 12, 13. 
Um, and then that makes me think about here in Vermont, youth justice falls under the purview of child welfare, which we know is is unique. There aren't a lot of states who are doing these sorts of things. Mm. And so as we're considering the concepts of race and racism as a whole, I want to pay attention to kids of color in our juvenile justice system. And what are some of the things that workers need to be thinking about? I know we're kind of talking about some, some uh, pretty... Um, broad themes, but also giving great specific examples. But can you talk a little bit about um, working with kids of color in the juvenile justice system and, and things that workers need to be considering or thinking about or doing? Well, there, there are lots, but if I had to uplift <laughs> one thing, um, you know, in the interest of being precise and concise, it would be to recognize that um, it, it is hard to be, uh, to live a life of devaluation, to have membership in a stigmatized group, to have the kinds of experiences that that children of color and people of color have and not and not have rage. And rage in the youth justice system is a very dangerous and complicated thing for young youth of color to have because our response to rage in our society is not a therapeutic response, but a punitive response. And, uh, you know, that we have had this inability to differentiate between anger and rage. And so that the rage that lots of adolescents and youth of color have is often untreated or mistreated within the context of the youth, uh, the youth justice system because either we want to have those children involved in anger management, which is wonderful for anger, but does very little for rage, or we attempt to punish them for rage. And, and there's no way to eradicate rage while the conditions that are responsible for rage are allowed to persist. And so that I, I, I find myself as a clinician having, you know, multiple, multiple conversations with young kids of color about rage. And on the one hand, trying to legitimize their rage, that, that that's a legitimate feeling for you to have. Uh, and at the same time, that it cannot be eradicated. You can't get rid of it. Uh, and so what has to happen is it has to be channeled. And I think it's up to the workers who work with youth of color to help every youth of color you work with find some particular vehicle or vessel for the channeling of their rage. Because if that doesn't happen, then uh, the system will either destroy them or they will be destroyed because that rage will get expressed in inappropriate ways. And when you really think about it, 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 it's, it actually saddens me to talk about this because when you have a 14 or 15 year old uh, who has a, a fair amount of rage, there is no appropriate place for that person to go to express their rage. You cannot express it on the streets in the presence of police. You cannot express it in your neighborhood. You cannot express it in church, temple, mosque, synagogue. Um, you can't express it in school. And so what happens is we have a lot of young people walking around with a belly full of rage and nowhere and no no legitimate means of, of discharging it. And so I think if I had to pick one issue that's such a critical issue in a youth justice system would be for workers to really create space to work with young people on issues of rage and helping them find some vehicles or channels for those rage. For that rage, sorry. Mm, thank you for that. If you could just um, distinguish rage from anger for folks so they have a sense of how they're different and, and um, 
how they might present well, differently. Yeah, well, well, I think of anger as being a much more immediate kind of episodic emotion. Like it's it's um, it, it is that which happens in the present. So, you know, if I had had difficulty logging on for this, I might have some momentary flash of anger. Like, damn, why does this have to happen now? Uh, so that's anger. It has a much more immediate uh, emotion. Rage, on the other hand, uh, is a much more, in many ways, primitive emotion because it has a history to it that it builds up over an extended period of time. It's like what happens when you have a kind of racial slight and you decide, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stuff that. And so you stuff it. And then you have another racial slight and you stuff it. And so what's happening is every time one stuffs an experience, that one's essentially planting the seeds for rage. It's a kind of nuclear buildup that happens. Uh, and it becomes all consuming. Uh, and the only way without intervention that rage gets expressed is either through implosion, that it basically destroys the person inside out, or explosion where the person then strikes out. And usually that has some element of destructiveness to it as well. And so it's a very complex, if I think about my own rage over the years, that some of it has to do with my own experiences. It has to do with experiences and feelings uh, and circumstances were passed down intergenerationally so that I think there's a rage is, is intergenerationally transmitted. Uh, it also is rooted in assault to one's literal self or one's symbolic self so that it's why how I would explain the number of <clears throat> black and brown people who felt furious after watching the George Floyd murder. That wasn't just fury, it was rage, that it just connected and ignited something that was already there. And so <clears throat> I do think it's a, a deeply debilitating emotion. I think it's gendered in many ways. And so I think that we're much more attuned to the rage of males and boys than we are of girls. And, and a girl's rage oftentimes is turned inward. And so that um, we're much more likely to respond to a 16-year-old who's threat threatening to kill someone than we are a 14-year-old girl who is cutting her wrist uh, or engaged in hypersexual activity, that we see that as nothing more than her promiscuity, not rage. And so there's a way in which it is, it is like I said, if I had to pick one issue that I think is critical to really work with around um, youth, it would be rage, because mm. I, I, I don't think we have a good understanding of how it operates. And I would also say uh, that we also have a tendency to shut it down. Again, that's that kind of what you're talking about. There's no safe place for kids to express their rage and have it be held and heard and even, you know, kind of, I don't know if honored is the right word, for, for what it is. And I'm glad you made that point because it's almost like a seesaw relationship that <clears throat> when we shut it down, uh, there's also a, the, it actually increases the intensity of rage. So, mm -hmm. so every time we shut it down, it also is like an investment that's increasing. So it's, it's so it's a it's a it, the response to shutting it down is is actually contraindicated. I mean, basically, it it actually exacerbates the issue. So then, how how then would you suggest that child welfare systems, district offices, or supervisors, or even workers, how then do you uh, suggest that they go about creating those channels or opportunities for kids, especially kids of color? to express their rage? Well, it's hard to, it's hard to help them channel it. Mm. If, if I, as the worker, 
am fearful of it or them. If I see you as threatening and I'm guarded, I can't possibly help you navigate this. So that's, again, so there's a piece that comes back to the self of the worker. And then secondly, I have to take the time to get to know you, to know what's important. How do you, how do you make meaning in your life? Because the potential vehicle, like I understand clearly, clearly that like part of my motivation for doing this with you is that this is a vehicle for my rage. It allows me to channel all of the, the deeply rooted feelings I have into some societally acceptable medium. And so for some kids are able to channel that into athletics, some into spoken words, some into, you know, performing arts, you know, I, but I think we have to sit down and we have to have the take the opportunity to get to know the whole person, uh, to know their story and to be able to hear that story before we can even come up with viable options, suggestions for what their vehicle for rage might be. And oftentimes, if we are approaching this work, having approached this work where we have eight to 10 sessions or that we have to move rapidly, where we structure the work around what we need, what we want and what I need to fill out the appropriate paperwork, then that doesn't afford me the opportunity to get to know the whole person sitting in front of me. And what it does is it limits the options that I have available to even consider uh, for potential vehicles for rage. And if I'm kind of following along, and you can tell me if, if this is off here, but I just want to, again, you've provided so much information. It sounds like you're talking about humanizing the child. It sounds like you're talking about, you know, first of all, just recognizing race and racism as issues that create this deeper pervasive sense of rage. And then to humanize that rage, that sense of um, double stigmatization that you were talking about before of being a kid of color in the welfare system, child welfare system and being trauma informed as being racially informed. I think that's one of the things that uh, you'd either said here <laughs> in another place I'd seen you are really, really seem to be critical components. But then again, the worker really has to do some deep self-work in order to be able to hold, create that holding system for the child to, to express themselves. Um, and then on the other side, when we're talking about white kids, you said so much about the need to talk to white kids about whiteness in the same way that they'll talk to kids about gender. Um, I really appreciated that analogy. Hopefully folks can really latch on to it as, um, as easily as I did. Um, is there anything else that you can think of that you want to make sure that people, if they, if people walk away, what is it? We, we lose 80% of what we learn <laughs> when we walk away. If there were one or two points that you want to make sure that our listeners today walk away with etched in their minds and hearts forever, what would they be? One is that just that I think that if you're working with clients of color, children of color, uh, the, the issue of race has to be dealt with. It has to be on the table uh, in terms of race and racial trauma. That That is absolutely imperative. And the other is that it's important for us. Uh, there's a bumper sticker I love, which says that when a, when a teacher ceases to be a student, the teacher should cease to be a teacher. And so I love that because what it means is that we, that we all have to have some willingness to learn and, and to continue to be curious. And particularly that curiosity about ourselves, if we're working with the human spirit, it's such a blessing and privilege to do that. But it also requires something robust of us. It requires us to be lifelong learners, that we're constantly being curious and asking, in our, asking ourselves questions. Uh, that, that come back to enrich in the work we do. And so those would be the two things. 
Well, thank you so much. And I can tell you, I'm constantly learning from you. It doesn't matter how many years it's been since I've seen you. You always offer such rich and deep um, soul work. So thank you again for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the state of Vermont. Our music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop. And our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Esmond Communications and Egan Media Productions. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.